Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Dyker. This is episode 15, Appellate Workflows, part two. Thanks for joining me. This week's show is again sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. Our topic this week is about appellate workflows and some of the ways we approach our work as appellate lawyers. But this is part two of a discussion that started in episode 12. In that show, we talked about everything up to the filing of principal briefs. And in this show, we'll cover appellate workflows for oral argument through post-opinion motions. My guest again is Chris Donovan, an appellate attorney and shareholder at Retzel and Andrus in Naples. The continuation of my discussion with Chris is coming up next. So, Chris Donovan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, for those who don't remember, you were on the show not too long ago, but you're a shareholder at uh, Retzel and Andrus in Naples, and you're a board-certified appellate specialist, right? That is true. And uh, when you were on the show the last time, we were talking about appellate workflows, and this was not that long ago. It was episode 12, and we spent an hour or so talking about you know, how we get cases ready for uh, briefing and all, all, all sort of the steps up to filing of the briefs and kind of just compared. You and I both talked a little bit about how we go about the process. And it's actually, I got to tell you, it's been a very popular episode. Um, that episode released on August 4th and it's become, I think it's like my fifth most popular episode already, which is which is great for something that's been out such a short period of time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad people were interested interested in that, and uh, I'm glad we were able to come back here to uh, pick up where we left off. Yeah, so that that tells me that either people are very interested in the topic, or they want to hear you, or maybe a little bit of both. Well, maybe. I mean, I think this is a very interesting topic in general, and and hope that you have other practitioners on there so that we can get different perspectives on that workflow uh, style of things because that other people's meta and other people's workflow is something that greatly interests me. I think that's right. And I think that we don't always spend a lot of time talking about the, you know, the behind the scenes methods that we go through. We talk a lot about strategy and, and, and writing and, you know, what we say at oral argument and how we say it, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about the real back channel stuff of how do we uh, go through the process of, of preparing these things? What's the behind the scenes take? Right. Right. So when we left off, we had finished with filing the brief. And so that still leaves us with quite a bit we could talk about from a, a workflows perspective. And probably the biggest uh, next step is oral argument. That's correct. Yeah, of course that. Then there's, of course, the uh, time period between when that brief is filed and oral argument, which not much happens, but that's the uh, long period of time. <laughs> a lot of, lot of time that lapses for you to forget everything you just wrote, basically. <laughs> well, and when we file the briefs, we have to, you know, round about then, we have to decide whether we're going to request oral argument. And what's what's your thought on that? Are you uh, do you have a philosophy on on oral argument when you request it, whether you're an appellant or an appellee? I I have a general rule of thumb, and 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 generally speaking, I think that uh, most cases probably don't need oral argument, uh, and I know that's 
not a, a, a rule of thumb shared by everybody. Uh, but I put so much into, uh, so much blood, sweat and tears into my briefs and, and leaving no rock, uh, uh, uncovered that oftentimes I'm not sure what else there is more to say, uh, unless the court needs oral argument to ask those questions, in which case they will set it on their own without me asking. Uh, but in terms of, do I always ask for oral argument? No, but if I'm, I'm more likely to do so if I'm the appellant, uh, and and uh, or if it's a novel issue or some issue that uh, is complicated, and maybe I feel that it's easier to explain uh, uh, after the briefing, you know, orally rather than just in, in writing. And of course, then there's consultations with the client and whether or not they can afford it and, and, and the time and, and the actual attendance of oral argument. But generally speaking, I don't think most cases need oral argument. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, considerations with the client. Um, obviously, expense is an issue uh, as to whether you decide what you're going to ask for oral argument. But you had mentioned time frame. And what, what are your thoughts? Do you... Do you generally think that cases get resolved quicker if you don't ask for oral argument? Because I've, I've sort of had a mixed results on that. Yeah, I have. Ex I have struggled with that question as well. Um, I mean, it certainly gets assigned to do two different tracks depending on whether or not there's oral argument requested or oral argument waived and, 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 and generally narrow should the two cross. I mean, so if you waive it, then although I said a minute ago that the, if the court wants oral argument, it'll, it'll set it, but they don't always, they don't generally, if it's not requested, um, it probably expedites things slightly. Maybe if you ask for oral argument, uh, because in my experience, OA is, then set about two or so months after the request. Um, and then if you're the appellee, you could get a PCA, you know, a week after that or two weeks after the oral argument, mm -hmm. the PCA being the per curiam affirmance. Um, so in that respect, it could, could be slightly faster, but to me, it doesn't, the, 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 the speed does not outweigh necessarily the expense of doing it when it's unnecessary. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think, you know, theoretically all that is true. It really, it probably should be faster because you're not waiting on a panel to be assigned and scheduling out and that sort of thing. But I guess since, since all these cases seem to take different amounts of time to resolve, it's hard to tell for sure whether it was really any right. faster or not. We just have to sort of go on faith in that regard, I guess. Right. And there could be factors happening at the court that have nothing to do with your case as well. Maybe uh, a judge has retired and, and so it changes their ability to, to, to move quickly on cases. So a backlog of cases might build up, et cetera. All right. So you, you've, you or someone else files a request for oral argument. We, we go through the wait of waiting to see what happens. You get the order uh, setting the oral argument. Is there what what do you do at that point? Is there is there much to do when you first get the the notice in the mail? Not really. I mean, I I look at it. Of course, the first thing I do, especially practicing in the Second District Court of Appeal, uh, which is based out of well, sort of based out of Tampa. I guess their home office by statute is uh, uh, in Lakeland, which is where they 
have their clerk's office right now. But uh, uh, so that's the first thing I do is I look to make sure that that the location of the oral argument is actually going to be in Tampa. It's become a little more likely to be in Tampa uh, lately because the court in in Lakeland has uh, been closed because of asbestos problems. Um, so generally speaking, you're going to be in Tampa now. So that increases the odds of it, of not making a mis- or that decreases the odds of making a mistake and ending up at the wrong courthouse. But the appellate court does travel and they uh, will generally try to hit every county uh, once during the uh, year. And so you could end up getting scheduled uh, pretty much in, in any county that, over which the second uh, district court of appeal uh, presides. And routinely, I'm in um, uh, Charlotte County or Lee County or uh, the, 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 there's also some in, uh, when they have it in Henry Glades County, which is uh, often in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you got to be careful where where oral arguments scheduled. So I always look for that first. And then I basically just forward the notice onto my assistant and ask her to calendar it. And uh, uh, if it requires traveling, which generally it does since I'm in the Naples area, uh, have her go ahead and set me up a hotel for the night before. It is funny, although, like you say, the, the, the court does travel. And although it's not like I'm there every week or anything, but it feels like I somehow I stumble across those days a lot. <laughs> I've, I've appeared in front of the second DCA numerous times when they were not sitting, oh, and other DCAs too. The first DCA I've appeared in front of, uh, you know, appeared at non-standard locations a few times, either at the circuit court or uh, first DCA. We did first, first coastal uh, law school one time. It's uh, it's always an interesting new stress to uh have a new location somewhere you have to find, you know, chances are good that you have some sort of audience because they're doing it for a reason. So it's, um, I, I kind of get a kick out of that sometimes. Like it's, it's fun to have an audience, you know, normally you go for OA, there's a couple people there who are only there cause they have to be. And <laughs> when you go to, when you go to one of these road trips and there's actually an audience of people, it's, uh, it's kind of fun. It is. And actually, there, a quick funny story. I had uh, OA set in Bradenton once, and you talk about always you know, keeping you on your toes when, you do it, when you're doing those traveling, as, no matter what DCA you're in. Uh, this was a bit of a surreal experience because when I showed up, uh, it was two second district court of appeal judges and then Judge Maycar, the first DCA, and it threw me off a bit. I think it was Bradenton or or, or, or I think that was where it was located, it, but it threw me off because he was apparently sitting, a first DCA judge was apparently sitting by designation on a panel of second DCA judges for, for, for the cases being heard that day. Yeah. So at first I thought I was in the completely wrong court. <laughs> uh, one time I, I was appearing in front of the second, and I can't remember if it was Bradenton or Naples. It was, it was somewhere, and there was an audience of high school kids and I had really sort of tuned it out because they were all behind me. I couldn't, uh, you know, see them and they were being very quiet and I wasn't really thinking about it. And I said something, uh, I said something that garnered a laugh, a pretty good laugh from the audience. And it was like having my own laugh track and it kind of caught me, caught me by surprise. <laughs> you know, I remember, oh yeah, there are people here listening. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. funny. And as an aside, we're we're focusing. I focused mostly on answering that question as to uh, uh, state, you know, the Florida's district court of appeals. But if we have 
oral argument in the 11th Circuit, it's even more important, the federal 11th Circuit, it's even more important to make sure that you have the right location because they often will not just be in Atlanta. Sometimes you'll be scheduled to hear OA in uh, uh, Jacksonville, maybe even Miami. I think they have a branch office down there as well. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, so now how long before oral argument do you start actually preparing in earnest? Do you have kind of a, a schedule? Yeah, I have generally a schedule. I, uh, I generally speaking, I, I start about four or five days in advance. Um, I particularly like the quietness of the weekend, uh, depending on when exactly the OA is. So I'll probably start like if the OA is on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, then I'll, I'll work that weekend before, you know, beginning on Thursday or Friday, um, and, and going through the weekend. Some of the bigger cases, I might start two or three weeks in advance, uh, but um, generally that's when I begin starting my main prep work. I do, of course, also try to uh, watch for potentially relevant cases as well between the time period of when it's, well, when the last brief is filed and when OA is scheduled, but it uh, that's, I find that to be a difficult uh difficult at times because you're, you're moved on to other things and you're focusing on other things, but uh, certainly watching for new cases that could impact your OA is important and filing notices of supplemental authority if necessary. Yeah. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I, I'm, I hope I'm not alone in this, but a lot of times, you know, my, when I start prepping for oral argument, the first thing I have to do is go back and read all the briefs because it, it's amazing. You know, you, you're, you're so into this for such a period of time while you're working on the briefs. And then uh, I feel like when I, once I set that aside, other cases push that information out of my head. And I, I don't, it takes me a little while to get back into the groove of it. And it all comes back, but it takes a good, you know, perusal through the briefs uh, to you know, kind of get my head back in the game. Completely agree. I mean, I uh, I don't know if it's the uh, the old uh, uh, college uh, time when you're at college, you you get prepared for a test and you have a, a, a you know a brain dump afterwards. But I'm never as smart about the case as when I'm writing the briefs, and uh, <laughs> I always have to try to get back up to speed and at that same level and 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 uh, uh, caliber of knowledge. Uh, but when it's time to get to the to the oral argument. And that's that therein is the importance of the prep. Yeah. And one thing, I don't know if you do this, but one thing I do, I can't remember if we discussed this in the last episode, when I'm writing the brief, I do keep a separate list of things that I want to be sure I remember for OA. Uh, and so when I, when I first get back into it and I review the briefs, I'll go to that list of things. If there were, you know, maybe some particular analogy that I thought was great that I wanted to make or some connection that I wanted to draw at oral argument that maybe I didn't highlight in the briefs, I, I will, I will jot that down so that I, I'd be sure to remember that. I, I don't do that as much as I should. Um, but I can see how that would be very helpful. And, uh, in the times that I do jot something like that down, then it's a matter of trying to remember the fact that I jotted it down <laughs> where, I, where I put it in my notes. Right. All right. And so, um, do you, do you outline for oral argument? How do you how do you put together the the arguments that you intend to make? 
So I'm very, very mechanical in my OA prep work. I don't, I, there are times where I think to myself, this is terribly inefficient, but uh, like, like a, like a baseball player who wears the exact same lucky playoff socks. I feel like this is, this has worked for me and I need to do it every time. Um, even if, and if I don't do it, then I'm not doing the oral argument, which actually that's something that recently happened where there was an aligned party and uh, by issue, I only had one issue and they had six issues and there was a lot of overlap. So we just let the aligned party do the, uh, uh, and it was a very well-respected attorney, appellate attorney. So I let him do the, had him do the oral argument because I didn't think there'd be enough time to really split it uh, where we were at uh, until we got to the oral argument and the judge said, oh, well, we're going to give you guys more time, which would have been more <laughs> helpful <laughs> to know in advance because I would have prepared differently. But in terms of actually preparing, I typically begin by creating two, or excuse me, four word documents. One word document I title a detailed outline of the briefs. Another word document I title legal authorities. The third is titled potential questions and answers. And then the fourth is my speaking outline. And so you mentioned you, you reread the briefs. Well, I, I not only reread the briefs, but I then try to outline the briefs and that goes under the, the, document that I've titled detail outline of briefs. And I try to outline them uh, based on the issues in terms of initial brief issue one, answer brief initial uh, issue two, I'm sorry, initial brief issue one, answer brief issue one, and reply brief issue one, which, and the reason, part of the reason why I do that is because the Second District Court of Appeal, I'm not sure that all the other district courts do this, but their staff attorneys, when they get our briefs, typically create uh, compilations of the briefs, or they used to be called summaries of the briefs, that, that basically line up the issues in that fashion so that a judge is reading all of the arguments related to one issue at the same time. So I want to prepare the same way that the judges that I primarily practice in front of uh, will have read the briefs, which also allows me to get a very big picture of it. Um, so that's I begin by outlining the briefs as as part of my uh, oral argument proper process. Yeah, I do something similar. Uh, I actually use the word file from my brief, and I just start deleting. You know, I delete <laughs> transitions and and discussions and that kind of thing, so that it kind of I start condensing my you know, 25 page brief into something that's maybe, you know, eight pages or something that's got the key sites in it and such, but I don't retype them. You know, I just sort of take my brief and condense, literally condense it by, you know, uh, deleting excess stuff and put it together into a, a detailed outline. And, and then I'll usually interlineate it with, you know, the thoughts that I've pulled from the um, opponent's briefs you know, that responding to each argument. So I, I have a similar process, but rather than, um, st rather than building an outline, I, I take my brief and condense it down to an outline, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. I, and, and I'm, as you're explaining it, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that might be more efficient. And would that work for me? And, and maybe it would, but, uh, I think the reason why I do the separate outlining is, I don't know, maybe it's that whole grade school concept of, you know, if I write it down again, over and over again, it helps me commence it to memory. Yeah. And it's an, it's, it's a process I used 
when doing law school exams, I would write these very extensively detailed outlines that, that sort of pulled in stuff from the, 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 the textbook and the, and stuff from the professor's lectures, uh, and, and, and create this massive outline that that would use to prepare for, uh, the, the final exams. And, and that's the same process I've Employ- and it's probably why I stuck with it because it worked for me in law school. So it seems to be working for me in private practice, but I could see how they, your path is, is a little bit more efficient, but gets to the same result. Yeah. And I agree with you about that process. The process of creating the outline is like studying in itself, right. And mm-hmm. you know, for law school and, 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 but I engage in that process more when I put together my, my notes for, that you know that I'm going to speak from, which 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 you do too. So so tell me about those. What what sure. goes into well, that? Well, before I jump to that, so as I'm, I will sort of flush out the other three documents that I told Please. started with in the beginning, explaining that I create. So as I'm detailing the uh, detail uh, briefing or sorry, detail outlining the briefs, I'm also going through the case law and legal authorities that I've cited in those briefs or that the other side has cited. And of course, also shepherdizing them to make sure that they're still good laws of the day of the oral argument. Uh, but I, if it's, if it's a legal authority that's of critical importance to the discussion and not just simply black letter law, like a canon of interpretation, then I'll summarize that and it's try to do two or three sentences. Sometimes it gets to three, four, five sentences in the dot word document that's titled legal authorities. Uh, and, and so, so this way I won't have to go necessarily back and reread those again. I'll just then be able to study the key legal authorities that uh, uh, the summary of that I've created uh, and the this, the third document being the potential questions and answers as I'm going through detailing the briefs, detail outlining the briefs, I'm trying to analyze what are the potential questions that I'm going to get by the panel, particularly questions that will be hostile to my position and then creating canned answers, oftentimes using portions of the outline uh, uh, that I won't be necessarily focusing on during oral argument, which then leads to the fourth document, and well, that is the hold detail. Hold on a minute. The, Let me stop you for a minute. The, the, sure. the list of potential questions and answers, that, that's a great idea. I do something like that too. I find it very difficult though. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I, I, mean I guess that there are, there are questions that are sort of obvious, right, that arise from right. the, the, the key issues and dispute between the parties. But so many times I go to oral argument and I get asked questions that I would have never thought of. Does that happen to you too? <laughs> yeah, I didn't say I was very good at thinking <laughs> of the questions that are a- adverse to my position. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's definitely worth the exercise. Don't get me wrong. I, but I, I'm just saying that sometimes it amazes me when I'm standing at the podium, I get the first question and I'm like, wow, I was not expecting that. <laughs> good question. I should have thought of that one, your honor. <laughs> Well, it's not even it's you know it's not even necessarily a hard question or a question that I can't answer. It's just a question that it's like oh, right no I, not where that, I thought yes, this was that going. Happens right? Probably, <laughs> I don't want to say every oral argument, but it happens at, at, at a lot a lot of oral arguments. I mean, uh, and, and even at, at the trial level, if I'm doing something at, at the trial level, level it yeah. never ceases to amaze me that no matter how much I prepare and how much possible maneuvering that I think to try to counter. 
in advance, the there's always somebody out there that has a chess move that I didn't think of. <laughs> and it's almost never the issue that the case turns on either. You know, it's just something that that caught the judge's attention when they read the briefs and you know, you're like, well, I, I didn't think that was important. And let me explain to you why it's not important. And then let's move on to the stuff right. that's really important. And then you <laughs> later find out that that's what they end up deciding the case on. <laughs> Sometimes, although yeah. I will say that there was a there was a, uh, a Florida Bar uh, Journal article a few years ago written by um, I think it was written by some first DCA judges or maybe before they became judges on the first, where they suggested that oral argument to be more effective should send out like questions for attorneys to focus on or areas of the arguments right. for attorneys to a focus, focus on. order, yeah, and. I I wish more of the appellate courts would do that because then oral argument might be more rewarding for everybody and cheaper. Yeah, no, there there has been some discussion of that I know there are courts that do that or or have the option of doing that of issuing what I think they call it mm-hmm. a focus order where they tell you you know be prepared for everything but be particularly prepared to discuss this you know and and that is. That would be interesting. I mean, it's a great tool to have some idea what they're thinking about. I guess you can't, you know, you can't focus on that to the exclusion of other issues, but it's it's nice to have heads, a heads up. There are some states out west, I think, where the courts actually issue like a proposed opinion before right. oral argument. So you kind of know whether you're winning or losing going in. Yeah, that sounds scary. But. <laughs> and how, you know, <laughs> it is scary. It really changes, so changes the nature of all argument a lot to know, uh, you know, I'm losing and, and why I'm losing. And, you know, I mean, I guess from an advocate's perspective, the more information right. you have, the better. Uh, and I, I think Florida courts have way too much of a workload to do that kind of thing. But I guess... You know, if you're in one of these smaller states and, and, and the judges have more time, I guess it would be nice to know going in kind of what they think about. But, boy, then if, you, if you're if you able to change your mind at oral argument, that, that would, would be a be. great feeling, would wouldn't it? <laughs> you get the reverse of the proposed opinion becomes their actual opinion. That would, would be awesome. Be. And you're right. I think that, you know, I mentioned that as an idea for the uh, judges. But the, the counter to that is you're, that – there's their workflow is just too much to be able to send that out, particularly in in several ca- in many of the cases. Not to mention, usually the as I understand it, at least the judges do not conference before the oral arguments. Uh, they, one judge takes the lead, and the other judges, you know, review that uh, uh, memo or staff staff memo that memo that's created and review the briefs, but the judges don't conference. So they themselves may not know what other judges find important enough for the uh, uh, parties to focus on an oral argument. That's right. And and if they don't, if you're just getting one judge's opinion as to what to focus on, then that's not very useful at all, is it? It's I mean, true. I, I mean, it's, it's useful, but it it's... It could be, though, depending on how important it, <laughs> the issue is. But then again, those will probably be the obvious issues that you would should want to focus on anyway. Today's show is sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. They can be reached at www.commercialsurety.com or toll free at 
810-810-5525. Their contact info is always in the show notes. I'm really happy to have a great business partner like CSBA supporting the show. The next time a client needs a super CDS bond, please give CSBA a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through this process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Well, tell me about the fourth document. So in the fourth document, it's the, uh, it's the detailed speaking points. I'm sorry, it's the speaking points for the oral argument. So what I've done at this point, uh, after creating the detailed outline of briefs, the, 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 the legal authorities, you know, summary of legal authorities and, and potential questions and answers, then that's what I generally focus on in preparing at that point. I, I sort of put the briefs aside uh, and, and I try to distill the detailed outline into a much more manageable amount of talking points, try to limit it to two pages at most. Um, and these are the things that I plan to focus on at, at oral argument. Yeah. I, and I do something very similar. I, I also limit myself to two pages and if we're going to get really into the weeds of the, the workflow here, what I, what I do is I, I, I take the two pages uh, and it's very condensed because there's a lot of information I want to get on two pages. And usually each page is two columns. So I sort of arrange it that way and arrange it by issue. Or So you cheat. You put more than. <laughs> I guess, you know, it's the same square, square inch, <laughs> same square inches, right? But, and I, right. I put them into a three ring binder that will lay flat and I hole punch them, but not so that you have to flip the page. In other words, so like, you know, the left side, um, the left side and the right side as you open it up are my outline so that with the, with the, with the notebook open and laying flat, I can see both those pages without flipping a page. Is that, am I, is that a good mental picture? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I used to do something similar to that when I would, uh, so I, I maybe jump in your, the gun here on your questions, but I, I pretty much use my iPad now at oral argument, but before that I would, use one of those uh, uh, folders that have the, the dividers. I'm sure that everybody's office has one of these. They usually have, you know, one divider or two dividers. I use the one that have the two dividers mm-hmm. or used to use the one. Uh, and the, the inside front cover would be where I would put my detailed outline. Of course, I would cheat as well. I would usually use the legal paper so I can fit, fit more on the uh, Oh, now pages. that's definitely cheating. Yeah. <laughs> But in my defense, I usually made the – that too was an outline, and I usually made different levels of the outline different sizes. So one could be like top level could be 16-point font and the next level 14-point font. This way I could see it when I'm looking down at oral argument and I'm nervous and I'm trying to present. Because uh, if I get it too fine, then I'm not gonna, it's a waste of time. I'm not going to be able to see it necessarily during oral argument. Um, but I so the the front two uh, covers of of when I used to use a hard copy would be the outline, and then you turn the the page. The middle two dividers would have maybe the legal authorities summarized, just the summary, not the actual authorities with it. And then on the other side of the the divider would have uh, maybe if depending on type of case, if it was a fact intensive case, then maybe I would have some some of the key record sites and and 
portions that I think would come up. If it's a contract case, maybe I'll have the key contract language, or if we're interpreting a statute, then I'll have a copy of the statute there so that if I have it and can read it while uh, the judges are reading it to me at oral argument. Uh, and then the last part of it, the, the end of it, the back of it would be where I would keep my detailed outline not to use during oral argument, but just so that it's on me when I'm preparing, because generally speaking, that's the only thing I would have taken at oral argument is just that little flimsy uh, notebook, so to say. Uh, but now I do digital and I, I do the same thing, but just uh, on an iPad. Yeah. No, that sounds very similar. So I, I, I would put together, like I said, this three ring binder, it would have so that uh, usually I'll use the I'll use the three ring binders that have a slot in the front um, where you mm -hmm. can slide something in, you know, as like a cover page. And usually that'll be the notice of oral argument. Just I don't know why, because that's what I do. So I remember who the judges are and where to go and what time. Right. Uh, and then the next two pages, once you open up those pages, that'll be my outline. And then behind that, I'll have my my uh, my detailed outline and maybe a couple of the key cases. Um, then I'll have a separate binder that has, that I, that takes no work for me to prepare because it's, it's just got copies of all the briefs in it that I've already been using as a part of the brief drafting process. And then, uh, usually I will have the record on my iPad. And so right. I'm, I, I, I have that too, but you know, my philosophy, and I don't want to talk, I want to talk mostly about preparation and not about technique this time around. But the reason I set things up this way is I figure, you know, ideally I don't need my outline at all. Um, mm -hmm. But realistically, I glance at it, but I don't ever want to have to flip a page at oral argument. That's why I set it up with the two-page format so I can look down to remember, you know, the, the case site that I wanted or the point that I wanted to make. If I've got a flip to my to one of the cases or a detailed outline at the podium, things are not going well, right? I might, right. I might do that when I'm sitting at council table. If I'm, you know, if I'm going back up for, for, um, rebuttal, I might flip through it then. But if I have to, and if I have to go, you know, heaven forbid to the record or, or my notebook, then things are really not going well. <laughs> right. You know, I, ideally I, I, I'd love to go up with just absolutely nothing, but I'm I'm not quite there yet. I, I like to have my my two pages of outlines just in case, and the rest of it is sort of a security blanket. But I I don't um, I can't abide by the the people who bring in boxes and boxes of documents. Right? That's you're never going to get to it, so why bother? I I agree. I mean, first maybe the first couple of oral arguments in my career, I used to bring those thick three inch three ring binders that contain the record. But I stopped, even when I was still using paper, I stopped bringing all that because you're, you're never going to get to it. Uh, uh, but yeah, it is nice though to have, you know, with the iPad and that's what I use during the oral argument. And I basically do the exact same thing, but there are tabs at the top of the, uh, the program that I use the PDF reader program that I use. Uh, but it is nice to have the full record there. And it has come in handy once. I actually had a, a question, one of those, like you mentioned, that came out of the blue that I wasn't expecting. Uh, and he wanted, the judge wanted to know something about a check that was at page 3,200 of the record. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite handy to actually be able to pull that record up and type in 3,200 and actually look at the check that the judge was talking about. Oh, definitely. Yeah.
but the that doesn't usually happen at oral argument at least in my experience no but i will let me just add one more thing in terms of preparation and what we bring with us because uh, i think this is a, i i did this more in paper format but uh i could i still do it sometimes with with uh with the digital format i'll bring stickies with me like little sticky notes uh particularly if I am the appellant because that's what I'll put my rebuttal on uh, is I'll put, make a couple as the, as the uh, Applebee's attorney is speaking, I might, if I hear something, I'll write it on a sticky of how I, you know, one or two notes of what I want to say, not the full thing, obviously, but something that will jog the memory. And if I have three stickies, I know I have three points on rebuttal, so to say. I try not to do more than three stickies. But that was a, an old trick that uh, a, a senior, very good uh, uh, attorney uh, litigator in my office used to use at the trial level. And I find that it works fairly well at the appellate level as well. No, that's a good idea. I, I guess I should have mentioned that what, what I bring actually bring to the podium is my, my you know small – Binder that was really just for the two-page outline and uh, a yellow pad and a pen, and uh, mm. that way, if if something comes up that uh, while I'm speaking that I need to jot down, I jot it down. If I'm going back up for rebuttal, then I have it, you know, there with me. So that's you know kind of low tech too. But I, I I wanted to comment on the iPad thing. You know, I, I'm a big user of technology and Apple stuff, and iPads uh, for sure. My biggest problem with using the iPad at oral argument for something other than what I use it for, like being a resource for the record just in case, is that my firm requires some security software that uh, in order to, for me to get firm email and such on the laptop, on the iPad, that locks the iPad. If you don't touch it, you know, for three minutes or five minutes, it locks it. And and that can be a, you know, it's not that hard to unlock it, but it can be a little bit of a struggle when you're desperately looking for something to maintain, you know, the flow of a sentence that you're going to say or something. So I've, I've always felt constrained not to use the iPad for OA just because of that. I think if I had my own that wasn't connected to the firm, uh, I would probably feel more, more apt to do that. But the security software is kind of a pain in uh, when it comes to, you know, having the thing sitting on the podium just sort of waiting for me. I, so I have my own iPad and the firm doesn't provide iPads, but they do uh, impose security measures or they have a secure, an app that we have to, if we're going to use it for work that we have to right. install and that creates uh uh, some level of security. It doesn't it sound like it doesn't sound like it works exactly like yours, where it it has a a, a timeout feature beyond mm -hmm. just what the iPad. You know, that's one of the features that the iPad could have anyway. Right. Uh, I usually try to remember to set that to fifteen minutes or whatever the longest one is right before I go up for OA. But I've had that happen where it goes dark on me, and then I have to quickly type in my password. Luckily I can use the thumbprint. So that helps make it a little faster, but, uh, um, I just find the, the ease of it to outweigh that somewhat pain. Um, sometimes I'll even put my finger on it while I'm speaking during oral argument so that it just won't so, time yeah, out. Yeah. See, I think our, our software overrides that timeout that you can set in the settings and, uh, forces it to, 
I think it's three minutes. So, you know, that's a pretty short period of time. I'd, I'd constantly yeah. be unlocking it <laughs> just out well, of habit, tell, you know. <laughs> hopefully nobody from my IT department listens to this. Well, <laughs> really, I know. You never want to give IT people ideas about more security. No. <laughs> so what else? Is there, what about, uh, I mean, night before OA, any particular practices you go through? So, yeah, I try, like I said, I try to finish the speaking outline on the afternoon before OA. Uh, and then, because I usually have to travel, uh, I always travel the night before, unless it's only to Lee County or, you know, when they're doing their visiting, uh, holding oral arguments somewhere outside of Tampa. But I usually travel the night before to Tampa. Uh, I actually had a, a, a judge once down here who was sitting by designation uh, at the second DCA, he warned me always do that because one time he was supposed to be up there, not for oral argument to, tr to give the oral argument, but to be a judge. And, uh, he tried to go up the night before or the morning of, and had a flat tire and called the court and said, Hey, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be, I'm not going to be able to make it. I have a flat tire. And they said, no worries. We'll wait. <laughs> so they waited till they held everybody's cases up until he could get up there and they started court in the afternoon. Um, and so, I mean, they're not going to wait for me. No. <laughs> they don't necessarily need me. So rather than have the stress of it, I always go up the night before and, and stay in a hotel and try to have a nice meal and then a good night's rest, especially you can when you're not in your own bed. Right. Um, but during that process of, you know, when I get up there, that's while I'm eating, I usually have my detailed outline and I'm going over it and going back over the legal authorities. And, and maybe that night I start actually verbally practicing it out loud. Uh, it's as corny as, as anything to stand in front of a mirror and after, you know, I don't know, f 15 years of practice, you'd think I wouldn't, but I still do. I still stand in front of a mirror and give my oral argument start to finish. If I don't do it the night before, I certainly do it uh, the morning of. Um, and I always have breakfast the morning of. I know some people can't eat uh, before oral argument, but I like to go out and get a nice breakfast. That's usually when I kind of splurge and get pancakes or something <laughs> <laughs> comfort foods right <laughs> yeah comfort food uh but then afterwards before i leave i will put put my suit on uh, and actually give the oral argument in the suit because i think that's part of the preparation stuff and doing it the way you're going to be doing it in practice um in front of a mirror though not in front of judges i don't yeah. usually hold moot courts because one, that's an expense that most clients can't cover or don't want to pay for. Uh, and two, most cases don't need it. If I was going, if I had a big case going before the Florida Supreme Court or the 11th Circuit, uh, uh, Federal Circuit, or even the U.S. Supreme Court, I would certainly moot those instances several times. Sure. Uh, but for a DCA argument, I don't use moot courts. Do you? Well, um let me back up a little bit. I think I, I agree with everything you said. I, I also try and I definitely practice my arguments out loud. Um, it always sounds so much better in your head than when you're actually saying it, you know, so you want to, you want to say it. Um, I try to always try to practice standing at something approximating a podium, you know, I so that I can, you know, look at my outline and force myself to not look at the outline to make eye contact with whatever, something else in the room, 
you know, to sort of simulate that process. So I, I go through kind of the same thing, definitely uh, the day before, the morning of. Uh, a lot of times if I'm driving, you know, from where I live to uh, Lakeland or well, actually we don't go to Lakeland anymore. But if I'm driving to OA, um, you know, I may be saying it out loud in the car <laughs> as I'm going down the interstate, you know, just trying right. to get it, get it down, get it smooth. Um, you know, as far as the moots go, um, not often. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is, like you say, the expense uh, of not only my time, but a couple other people's times. Um, the other thing is I don't, there are not a lot of appellate lawyers. I, I don't practice with other appellate lawyers at my firm. I mean, there are lawyers that have appellate experience, but um, it's not, um, I don't want to say that they couldn't help me with a moot court, but they don't, it's probably not as valuable as if we had a couple of appellate practitioners sitting around who are going to ask more realistic questions and understand who the who the judges are that are going to be on the panel and that kind of thing. So it, it kind of reduces the effectiveness a little bit. Uh, if the if the case is big enough, then we'll do it. And like when I I had the opportunity when I we took the case to the U.S. Supreme Court to do some moots uh, and that with with uh, co counsel and all those things are great. I think if, if a case uh, if the case allows it, it's certainly a great experience. But as a practical matter, it's it's just not always practical. Right. No, I agree. I agree. And as you were talking, though, I, a question occurred to me. In your preparation, do you spend time uh, looking up the judges that are going to be on your panel and, and studying at least their bio or any of their cases that they may have written? Yes. It, it depends on the circumstances a little bit. If it's somebody who's here in the second DCA, I probably have a pretty good idea, you know, uh, of what they're about. Um, if it's another court, then yes, I'll certainly read their bio and try and find out a little bit about them. Uh, if it's, it, it really depends on the issues. If it's, some sort of issue that's changing over time that's been a big issue, then I may look at what they've written before. It really just depends, again, on how much time can I budget to this? You know, how important are the issues? What is the client willing to pay for? That's another one of those things that's it's it's great to do. Um, I think it's more important at the, at the higher courts. If you're going to the Florida Supreme Court, if you're going to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, I think those sort of things are more important to courts that are making big policy decisions. I think right. a lot of times the intermediate courts, they're just applying the law. And while it would be nice to know if they've had some seminal, you know, opinion that they've authored on that point, it's a little less important. Right. No, I completely agree. Uh, and and especially since we regularly practice in the second district court of appeal, we, we, we have a pretty good knowledge of the, of the judges unless there's a new judge that's been appointed. And then usually I might spend a little more time just trying to get to know this judge and what their background is, because that also impacts, you know, the level of possible detail that you need to get into on certain things at, uh, during oral argument. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Now, let me ask you, I don't know if this is strictly an appellate workflow or this is an OA strategy, but this is something you have to think about in advance. Uh, visual aids for oral argument ever use them pretty rare uh i don't necessarily find aids to be very effective and and can turn an oral argument sour pretty fast 
Uh, I've probably used him once in my career, and usually it's something, you know, in that particular instance, it was a land use matter, and having a map of the area was just easier for everybody. Um, so in that instance, but <laughs> I had, I saw one uh, poor soul, he showed up with three placards, and right off the bat, he, the, the, the judge said, well, did you confer with opposing counsel about these? He said, no, you're on. He said, well, confer. <laughs> so he stopped oral <laughs> argument. The one guy said, well, I'm okay with two of them, but I object to the one. So he wasn't allowed to use one of them. And then when he set up the other one, uh, he, he, he set it up next to him. And the judge in the center said, well, if you're expecting any of us to be able to see that, we're not going to be able to see it. You're going to have to bring it closer. <laughs> it was a total disruption of his oral argument at that point. Yes. Uh, and and he, so then not only did it, did it disrupt him, but then he moved it forward right in front of the podium and went back to his podium and proceeded to start his oral argument. And they may have been able to see the the placard but they couldn't see him in fact you could see him kind of like looking around the sides of the podium and the placard <laughs> at the judges as he's talking and then at one point he sort of moves off to the side of it and then at some point the judge says why don't you move it over to the side a little bit <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah. So it could be disastrous. I try not to do that, especially when we have such little amount of time. I mean, in the second, we have a little bit more because it's 20 minutes, but some of the courts are down to 10 minutes now. Yeah, I, I don't think that I've ever used a visual aid or argument, and I, but I've seen lots of times when, it, not ne even necessarily my case, but I'm at oral argument, and I think trial lawyers who mm -hmm. aren't in the appellate courts a lot think that this is just what people do because that's what you do in the trial court. And so they come marching in with trial exhibits and stuff. And then, like you said, they are often told, uh, no, <laughs> you know, you, you need to file a motion if you want to do that and get the other side's position and that sort of thing. So it, yeah, it's, I agree that I, you know, to me, I, I have to assume that the judges understand, uh, what's in the record that they've looked at the key documents. If it was really a key photo or whatever, I've I've put an appendix, I've pasted it into my brief, you know, I've made it clearly available to them. So I find that I can see there are certain circumstances where it could be helpful, but I think the general rule is probably no. Right. Yeah. In fact, along those same lines, there have been times where I'll put color pictures in the actual brief, not just appendix, but in the actual brief as part, oh, yeah, of the, you know, part of the presentation. In that case, then I can just refer to the briefs page. So we're all on the same page, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, rather than bring in a, uh, a visual aid. Yeah, I'm all about doing that, putting images and briefs like that. Uh, I, I, I like that a lot because, you know, if it's that important, let's put it right there and make sure right. that they see it. And what about after argument? Are you um, like me? Are you kind of toasted after oral argument? Is that it for the day? Yeah, pretty much. I had a, a mentor once tell me, uh, never do anything work-wise after oral argument, which is a rule I try my best to live by. Uh, not always am I able to because right. sometimes you've got other demands or maybe another oral argument. I've had back-to-back -back oral arguments before, mm -hmm. uh, which are not fun. Uh, no. but. Uh, I do. I try to, you know, well, for one, I usually have to drive home um, from Tampa. So that's about a two and a half hour, two, two and a half hour drive, uh, which 
usually the drive home is, I mean, well, one, I try to call the client or the trial counsel and relay the, the discussion of what happened at oral argument. But a lot of times it's, everything that's going on that happened at oral argument is going through my brain. And I'm like, Oh man, I should have said that. Or I should have said that. (laughs) But once I get home, then I'm able to relax uh, and not think about oral argument or do work or just do something for me. Yeah. When you, when you have a, you know, a 1030 oral argument at the second DCA and you finish at noon, that pretty much feels like a full day of work. I feel like I can, I could, you know, go back to the office, uh, wind some things down, and go home and feel like that was an okay day of work. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I, there. It's amazing how even though they're only twenty minutes or sometimes less, depending on the court you're in, it if it, it's exhausting. It feels like a full day. <laughs> it definitely does. Yeah. All right, so you know, then the waiting starts, or hopefully you're waiting, right? Or, or I guess depends on what side you're on. <laughs> depends <laughs> what side you're on, because <laughs> we know, although PCAs can come very quick, um, although in my experience lately they don't always come quick. I've 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 had a few cases lately where I've thought, boy, this isn't going to be a PCA, and then it, and then it shows up. So you just never know. But um, right. what about uh, what? Now I talked with Deneen Wasilek. Uh, in episode 13, mm-hmm. which was uh, released a couple weeks ago, about sort of how we respond to a PCA. We get the we get the one page per curiam affirmed. You know uh, what what do we do? Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? What's what's your reaction to a PCA? Well, I mean, if I'm the appellant, obviously it's it, it's never pleasant. Um, I've usually tried to inform the uh, client beforehand that that's possible. And a lot of times in today's, particularly today, you can discern where the panel is already leaning during the oral argument. Uh, So you can start, even though you may want to still believe your own stuff, (laughs) just leave it as stuff, uh, (laughs) you, you, you could see the writing on the wall and you've already kind of advised your client that, hopefully you've already advised, I try to advise my client that it's not, it doesn't look good and it's highly possible that the court will just say affirmed. Uh, And in terms of what to do with that, I rarely do anything further. Uh, I, I certainly won't do a motion for rehearing unless it's accompanied by a request for written opinion. And I, because as I, I totally agree with everything Deneen said. I don't, certainly don't want to repeat that last week, last, uh, last week, last uh, podcast, but uh, episode 13, which is what's there to ask for rehearing on, on a PCA. You don't know what the decision was necessarily based on because it's, it's an unelaborated opinion. Right. Right. And of course, everybody should go back and download and listen to uh, episode 13. Agreed. Yeah. It was a great episode. <laughs> What if it's not a PCA? Well, if it's not a PCA, um, you know, it, it 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 still doesn't necessarily mean I want to do a motion for rehearing because it may be the correct decision uh, or at least one that we're going to have to live with because the odds of getting a rehearing or any sort of post-opinion motion decided in your favor are quite slim. I mean, lightning does strike, but it's rare. Um, and if I do it, I'm going to have um, 
especially if, going back to the PCA, I know that this was mentioned la- at the last podcast was the the uh, Stetson Law Journal article confronting a PCA finding a path around a brick wall, which was written by Steve Brannick. And that offers great tips for preparing a request for a written opinion. Uh, and it's largely based on a, uh, uh, a report that you can find on Google that was written in May of 2000 by the Committee on Per Curiam Affirm Decisions, which I highly recommend to people because it provides factors that you should be arguing to the court if you want a written opinion. Uh, but in terms of when the opinion is written and you just don't like it, yeah, that's that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And and Steve's uh, Steve's article is great, even though that was that's been two thousand three, believe it or not. But know, it's, it's still still a great resource and, and that the, the PCA report, which is even older, is definitely a good read. But uh, it'd be nice if the court would do another update on that. I, I I'd see if there's any changes to the philosophies, I guess you'd say. Maybe they don't want to know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if it's working, right? <laughs> don't right. fix it. Right. But uh, now if I get if I'm the appellee or I'm the winner, let me rephrase that, which is generally the appellee. If I'm the winner and I get a motion for rehearing, then my tactic is completely different. <laughs> I uh, in fact I I wish that the state rules would change and be a little more similar to the federal rules where it says that unless you're asked to respond as their winning party, uh, to a motion for rehearing, then you don't need to file a response. I just feel like that would be better if and cheaper for the client because oftentimes I feel like, well, this is just regurgitating the briefs. No, I, I totally agree. And maybe maybe we need to do a proposal to the appellate court rules committee on that. Uh, it, it feels just so wrong to have one. You know, right. you, 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 you win the appeal and then you get a motion for rehearing, which is normally not very well taken, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100. And uh, you have to spend time responding. And, and I find almost always my responses aren't even much on the merits. You know, it's pointing out the fact that they haven't, they're not really following the rule, that right. they haven't, you know, a, even alleged a basis for rehearing that's recognized under the rule, you know, those sorts of things. It's, just, uh, it's sort of, it's almost a canned, it's not quite canned, but, but my responses to motions for rehearing often sound a lot the same because there's just so few circumstances where a motion for rehearing is really appropriate. Right. In fact, one of the first things I do in that situation uh, is compare the, the motion for rehearing with the brief, with the, 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 the attorney's brief that wrote it, the mo- wrote the motion for hearing. And a lot of times it's word for word cut and pasted from the, uh, from the brief. And so when I do my response, I'll point that out oftentimes creating a, a a chart inside my response that you know highlights <laughs> uh-huh. specific arguments and where they show up in both the motion and the brief. I don't know if that's effective, but it seems effective because uh, I know there's plenty of case law that says, uh, although some of that case law may be debatable right now, but there's plenty of case law that says that you you shouldn't just repeat what's in the in the uh, 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 briefs. But some of that case law, the reason why I say some of it's debatable is because. There used to be the rule used to specifically say you shouldn't do it. And a lot of that case law is from uh, that era and that has been changed. So now the rule technically doesn't prohibit it, but I don't think it's a good idea. anyway. definitely not. It's 
you need to use a lot of discretion in deciding when it's appropriate to file any sort of these post-judgment uh, motions, and, and people don't always use the best best judgment in, in making that decision. No, and worse yet, they often – I don't think you see this in the appellate bar, but uh, they often – take inappropriate cheap shots at the court, (laughs) which then results in sanctions. And and I've had clients, I've talked to clients about that when I'm on on the other end where they want to file a motion for rehearing and they want to express their displeasure with the court. And it's like, you know, that's not what this is for. And, and it's just going to, you know, it's not going to curry any favor with the court. And their response is always, well, what do I care? I've lost already. It's like, well, but I care because <laughs> I have to practice in this court. So it's kind of up to me, you know? <laughs> right. Well, Chris, this has been great. I, uh, you know, it worked out perfectly about another uh, hour or so. We got through the rest of uh, the rest of the workflows to kind of work us fully through the case. I, uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming back and, and doing this again. Oh, no problem. I've enjoyed it, and I'm glad that the first uh, episode was so popular. Hopefully this one will be as well. Well, we'll see if it was a fluke or not. I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you put it that way. (laughs) So, Chris, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Well, my uh, direct line is 239-213-3865. You can also go to the website, www.ralaw.com. And uh, my email address is C D Donovan D O N O V is in victory A N at R A Law dot com, and you can also find me on Twitter at Appellate Guru. And pretty much find you at any Florida bar function, right? That's true. I try to <laughs> try to hit them all as I can. For sure. All right. Well, Chris, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, you know, I'm sure that we'll have you back on the show at this at some point. It's uh, Things are, are going well. I, I've got a bunch of shows planned out, but uh, there'll be more topics in the future. So I hope we'll have you back sometime. Great. I look forward to it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Donovan for being my guest one more time on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But of course, that being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you out. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. Thanks again for listening. Again, please consider telling another lawyer that you know about the show. If you could share a link on your social media accounts, that would be great. Any exposure for the show is greatly appreciated. And please consider using our sponsor, Commercial Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment to add it to your contacts so that you're ready when a client needs a supersedious bond. We've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. (laughs) 